Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Fifth Reformed Church. If you're a guest with us this morning, a special welcome to you. Thanks for finding us online. It's good to be worshiping with you this morning. My name is John Sherrill, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And again, it's good to be with you. Uh, Before we start, let's pray together, shall we? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to us through it. Uh, Thank you for guiding us and leading us and comforting us and reassuring us. Um, Please do all of that again now by the power of your spirit. Pour out your spirit on us and help us receive what you have for us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series titled Following Jesus, and we're in the home stretch. This is the next to last week, and we'll be wrapping everything up in a kind of capstone uh, message next week. Uh, But it's rather obvious that our world has been upended by this virus, and you know, while some things are starting uh, to look like they're coming back to normal, it still feels like there's a long way to go. And as you all know, it's caused different reactions in all sorts of different people. I mean, some people are exhausted uh, by the, the additional work that has been caused by this. Uh, some are out of work and maybe feeling bored and not knowing what to do. Uh, some are stretched to their limits in every way, really f- feeling maxed out. Uh, Others are kind of welcoming this as a respite from a way too busy life. Some people are are settling in for kind of a longer term recovery process. And as we know, some people are protesting in state capitals, demanding a more accelerated kind of process. Uh, Some think this is a global world changing health crisis. And other people, quite a few in fact, think the whole thing is a hoax, just a complete fabrication. Uh, Just last week, a poll in the United Kingdom showed that one in five adults in the UK don't believe this is a real thing at all, that it's a complete fabrication. I have to believe those numbers are similar in the US, though I I don't know for sure. That's all speculation. So there's a lot swirling around out there right now, isn't there? And that leads us to a question as followers of Jesus, which is, what do Christians do in hard times like that? Uh, What do Christians do? In hard times like that, we fix our eyes on Jesus and we follow him. That's what we do. Thus, this series, Following Jesus, hopefully giving us some very practical tools for the present time in which we're living. And and in that vein, some general ways, some practical ways we follow Jesus in this current situation in which we find ourselves, I think, are these. We need to keep in mind the reality that every single human being has been created in the image of God. And and as we engage them, we as Christians engage them with a basic level of dignity and respect for that reason alone, even if we disagree with them wholeheartedly. Second, we engage with every person with an eye toward how valuable that person is to God, because they are. God himself came to earth and laid down his life for the purpose of inviting that person home to him, that person alone. And as we engage people, we remember that as Christians. We're engaging a creature of immense value to God. And finally, in this, in this COVID recovery process, you know, opinions are all over the map. So it's, it's, it's my thought and uh, those of some others that the biggest challenge in this thing will be how, how we give each other grace in the recovery process. I've heard of families differing in opinion on, on how to handle it. Like, do, do you wear a mask at a family gathering or not? And is it safe to gather as a family or not? So 
What we do as Christians, how we follow Jesus in this specific time, is we give each other boatloads of grace for those differences of opinion. And we respect people for where they are and give them plenty of room to be who they are and where they are. I mean, these are some general ways that we follow Jesus in this time. And in this sermon series, uh, today we consider a specific way we might follow Jesus. And, and we consider kind of the way Jesus thought about family and what that means um, as to kind of what he modeled for how we might organize our lives to follow him a little more closely. So we read uh, several different smaller portions of scripture today, and we'll get to those in a moment. But I want to start with a memory that I have of being a child. I'm an only child, and my parents are fantastic people, both very loving, very kind. I was raised in a very warm home. But both my mom and dad were extreme introverts. I mean, we hardly ever went out to eat. Uh, I can only remember a few times inviting other people to our home for dinner. And I've shared with our church, at least, that I didn't grow up going to church. So um, not, not only was that true, but really our little family of three was not connected in any significant ongoing way with any community outside of our nuclear family. So most of the time, it was just the three of us. You know, mom, dad, and me, and I think of our spots at the dinner table and how all of that felt. And, and I so remember the Thanksgiving when my mom chose to invite our, our neighbor friends, a family of six, to our house for Thanksgiving dinner. And I was very young, but I still remember the way that it felt. It was fun, and there was energy, and there was conversation, and there was laughter, and, and you weren't involved in every conversation. There was buzz going on around the table and then in the, in the rooms of the house afterwards. And I, I so remember the way that that felt. And even though I was very young, I remember thinking, I wish we could do this every day. Oh, this was great. And uh, looking back on it, I, I realized that I was longing for something very basic. I mean, I, I think every human being longs for this, a place to belong and, and connect a place to feel at home and, and to be known. David Brooks, a national author, wrote the lead article of the March issue of The Atlantic. And the article that he wrote was titled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Very interesting article. You should read it. I think it's important for us. The basic premise is that uh, throughout history, the vast majority of human beings have lived in kind of a primary social unit of about 20 to 50 people, an extended family of people. And it was uh, really just the Industrial Revolution that changed that, uh, in the United States at least, when people's jobs were taken away from the home. Before that, it was mostly an agricultural economy, farming, and there were these big extended families that lived together to run the family business. That's one part of his article. The other part is that uh, kinship throughout history has been defined differently than we define it now in our culture. When we, if, if you ask me who my kin were, right, I would, I would describe my blood relatives to you. Maybe my, my Aunt Myrna or my Grandpa Dee and Grandma Fleeta and my, my mom and dad. But throughout the course of history, uh, kinship has been understood to be something that you can create. It doesn't just have to be blood relationships. It can be close friendships, uh, mutual support, mutual provision, mutual protection, those kinds of things. So again, very interesting article. And I think really important 
for Christians who are concerned about the mission of the church, about reaching unchurched people. For two reasons, I think the article is important. First, it describes the most deeply felt need in our culture. Now, you see this everywhere. We even see it within our congregation here at Fifth, a need to belong, a a place to be known and to connect. As we did a strategic planning process a couple years ago, one of the prevailing themes that came up in our church was uh, people who said, hey, I've been a member for a long time, but I don't feel connected. I don't feel like I belong. And in my mind, this is just an indication of what's going on in the larger culture, that our primary places of belonging have faded and some primary social units are no more. And we're on the hunt for those. Where can I belong? How do I feel a sense of family? Uh, that led us to our emphasis over the last year at, at fifth year, which has been making church feel more like family. You know, how can we reclaim some of that kind of connectedness and, and place, place of belonging and, and, and feeling known uh, within the congregation? So that's one reason uh, David Brooks' article is so important. The other is I think it really names a specific way that the church is not living like Jesus lived. Now, his article doesn't use those terms, but that's what this message is about. And the scriptures we looked at really get to that. So let's talk about the church living like Jesus for a moment. Look again at those verses from John's gospel that we read. Jesus said this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I I want us to focus for a moment on, on just this phrase, my father's house has many rooms. My father's house has many rooms. You know, when, when you read that, when I read that, the initial picture, I think, that probably comes to our minds is of a big house in the United States, kind of like the house of a wealthy person, a big structure, lots of rooms where a nuclear family lives, but they have the capacity to welcome in a lot of guests. Uh, but that's not really what the word means at all. The, the Greek word there, my father's house, the word is oikia. And it refers to the Greek word for family, which is oikos. And it's not referring to a nuclear family. It's referring to this big extended family, blood and non-blood relationships. Uh, The Hebrew language has a word for this too. It's called bet, B-E-T-H. It looks like Beth, but it's actually pronounced bet. And if you're reading through the Bible in our one-year reading plan this year, you're coming across this all the time, Uh, the city of Beit Shan in ancient Israel, or, or Bethlehem, Beit Lehem. You know, you see it all over the place. It means, uh, for Bethlehem, the word Lehem means bread, Beit means household. So Beit Lehem is the household of bread. That's what it actually means. So oikos and Beit. Now, in Jesus' day, people lived in these extended families that were oriented around the family business. And, you know, in the Bible, we read about a couple different kinds of family business, uh, stonemasons and fishermen. Those were primary in, in the ancient world, but there were other businesses as well. And the architecture of Jesus' day supported that family unit. So an oikia 
was the structure in which lived an oikos. So the, the oikia is the building, and the oikos, the household, this extended family, lived in that structure. And just so we can kind of get, it, get an idea of what that might look like in our mind, I have a picture for you. Look at this. And an oikia looked like this. There, there was a central courtyard, and you can see that in this picture. And then there were rooms surrounding that courtyard that opened out into it. And if you look around the perimeter, you can see that this really was a walled compound with a single door that could be closed and bolted shut to keep the oikos safe. So really, this, this extended family lived on a compound. And interestingly, when an ancient Palestinian couple would get engaged, there was a tradition that the, uh, the, the husband-to-be, the groom, would go back to his parents' oikia, his, their, their oikos, and he would add another room onto this little compound. And he would work really hard on adding that room, uh, and that would be the place where he and his wife-to-be would live once they got married. And once that room was finished, he then would go to his fiancé and say, hey, uh, I have prepared a place for you. The time has come. Now I've come to take you to be with me where I am. And then they would get married and they would go and live in the oikia of his parents and his family. And she would become part of their oikos. She would move from her family of origin to her new, her new family. And uh, there, there's a whole other sermon, by the way, in what Jesus said when he said, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come and take you to be with me where I am. He, he was referring to our death to this life. But the image he was using was of a... Uh, a groom-to-be finally finishing that place and, and all of the excitement and joy at being able to go and uh, uh, retrieve his fiance and get married and begin their new life together. So um, Jesus used that image to describe a Christian's death to this life. Not all the suffering that might lead up to it, all, all the pain that might lead up to one's death, but the actual moment of death for the follower of Jesus is that moment when uh, the, the groom comes and says to the bride, the follower of Christ's church, hey, everything is ready. Come and start a new life with me. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But that's a different sermon. This is about how people lived and uh, us thinking about how Jesus lived and how we might model that so as to follow him. Uh, if, if, you're new, if you're newer to the Bible or if you haven't, kind of rehearse the, the kind of the Cliff Notes version of Jesus' life in a while. Let, let me do that for us. Uh, he lived to about 33 years old, and he only did kind of ministry-related stuff for the last three years of his life. So that first 30 years uh, went very quickly like this. He was born, and then King Herod had heard about him uh, through a, a prophecy and sought to kill him. So Joseph and Mary took a baby Jesus and fled to Egypt. When King Herod died and it was all safe, they came back, but they were still a little uh, concerned about the political climate. So rather than going back to their original home, they settled in Nazareth, presumably with some extended family, some distant relatives, and they joined an oikos there in, in Nazareth. And Joseph settled in, and we, we often refer to Joseph as a carpenter, but that there really weren't many carpenters in Jesus' day. There were many more stonemasons. So it's much more likely that Joseph worked in stone and built houses out of stone 
and that this was the family business around which that oikos was uh, was gathered. So that probably is the trade that Jesus learned growing up, uh, how to work in stone and, and build homes and things like that. Uh, and then when he was about 30, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. And the Bible tells us that then God led him out into the wilderness uh, to be tempted and tested. And it was after that time, after that wilderness testing, when Jesus returned, when his public ministry began. And the first place he went was home, like back to Nazareth, his oikos. And there are stories in the Bible that tell us what happened there. He went back to Nazareth and he went to the synagogue and he began to preach. And those people knew him and said, wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son? This guy's a, this guy's a mason, not a rabbi. What's going on here? And they were so offended by him that they actually tried to kill him. You can read about that in the Gospels. So Jesus had to flee from his, from his home, from his oikos. And he, he left. And in, in that leaving, he was leaving behind every resource for support in life because everything happened in the structure of that oikos. So he struck out entirely on his own. And the Bible tells us that he stayed in the region of Galilee, but went from Nazareth to Capernaum, this, this sleepy little fishing village right down by the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and after he went to the synagogue there, we have recorded what happened next. And this is that passage from Mark chapter 1. Let me read it to you again. Look at this. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. This was Jesus' first interaction with Peter and Andrew and their oikos. You know, the scripture says that Jesus went with James and John to the home of the oikia of Simon and Andrew. And as the scripture unfolds, it becomes very clear that Jesus became a member of this oikos. This was his new family. And so we know this is where Jesus lived. He lived in Capernaum. Oftentimes, I think we, we might have this image of Jesus as an itinerant preacher, like he went to REI and grabbed a backpack and a bedroll and a sleeping bag, and he was just out sleeping wherever all the time. That's not the case. He had a home. He had a home base. He had a family. And, and as he gathered disciples, that larger oikos became their home base as well. So Capernaum was kind of Jesus' headquarters, and, and many things happened out of there. Uh, and interestingly, ar archaeologists have discovered with a high degree of certainty this exact home where Jesus had his home base, the, the oikia of uh, Peter and Andrew and, and their family. And you can walk to it this day and see it, see some of the foundation stones in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Um, so uh, Jesus became a member of this oikos. This was his home base. And he went out from there and preached in other places as well. And this is what we read about in Mark 3. Look at this again. Then Jesus entered a house, an, an oikia, somebody else's uh, house for their oikos. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And then later, his mother's his mother and brothers actually do show up there at that oikia to take him home, meaning to, 
to take him back to his original oikos in Nazareth. Remember, to that community that rejected him and tried to kill him. And this is what happened next. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You see what Jesus did uh, with regard to family is he forged his own. Jesus forged, put together, built a spiritual family. Now, as Christians, we have been adopted into the family of God. The Bible is very clear, uses that imagery in multiple places. And every follower of Christ has been authorized as a kingdom representative. The Bible says that we're co-workers with God in God's family business in the world, which is the missio dei, or the mission of God in the world. God's uh, purpose and intent to, to reach everyone everywhere with the gospel, to redeem people and the whole world and, and the renewal of all things. So we've been invited into that family business, and our purpose is to, to represent and proclaim the kingdom of God. And the most effective social structure in which to advance that work is almost entirely absent in the modern Western church. Think about that. For decades in the West, the church has been emphasizing, focusing on, and supporting the nuclear family. Instead of building larger extended spiritual families. And, and there, is, there, there are some very important ramifications that have come of that. And I, I'm just going to list two of them. One is the struggle that single people have in the church. The emphasis on the nuclear family has necessarily meant for single people that they feel incomplete or unwelcome or uh, somehow, you know, tainted or like something's wrong with them because they're, they're not participating in the primary social unit of the church. Biblically, there could be nothing further from the truth. The problem is not in them. The problem is a cultural one that we're grappling, grappling with and, and, and really a, a theological one where we as a church have organized our lives more by the dictates of culture than by the direction of Jesus in Scripture. So that's one ramification. And the second ramification is this. If you, if you take the sociological timeline and you kind of name the tipping point when we as a, a culture in the United States, where the nuclear family really took over from the extended family, I mean, that time would be right around 1900. The, revo the Industrial Revolution happened, you know, right after the Civil War and stuff kind of ramped out, ramped up. But right around 1900, there was this tipping point, and the nuclear family became the more primary social unit. It's absolutely fascinating. Right at that same time, churches in the United States went from growing in number and, and, and uh, per capita uh, uh, connecting people in the country to decline. It, it was basically the time the church in the U.S. went, went into decline. 
And ever since that time, we have not had enough churches to keep pace with population growth. And, and we've been declining ever since then. Why? I assert it's because we abandoned the single most effective social structure for advancing the mission of God in the world and for forming faith in people. And that is this, this kind of extended spiritual family of blood and non-blood relationships, 20 to 50 people. It's an incredibly important space in our culture. See, Jesus forged a spiritual family. We should too. But he didn't only do that. Jesus forged a spiritual family and he turned that family toward mission. Look, this was the second half of that passage in Mark. Look at this. Right after Jesus joined the oikos of Peter and Andrew, this happened. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, now this was unheard of. You know, the, the oikia was a compound. It had walls and a door that could bolt closed for the very reason of keeping people like that out. I mean, you closed the door to protect your family. You didn't welcome the crowds into your home like that. But here Jesus is turning that in, in entire tradition upside down. He's taking that primary social structure of extended family, and he's saying, Swing the doors open. Let them in. You know, use this space. Use these relationships. Use this structure to communicate the kingdom, to demonstrate the kingdom to people who are open to you and open to God. It's, it's absolutely revolutionary. It was revolutionary back then, and it should be revolutionary to us now because it should come as an incredible challenge to us. Just unheard of. Jesus forged a spiritual family and he turned that family toward mission, toward the purposes of God in the world. This, this really is what the larger missional discipleship conversation in, in the larger church is all about. I mean, it really is about helping believers become disciples, meaning we don't just believe stuff about Jesus in our head. We actually follow. We apprentice. We, we look at Jesus and, and try to follow him. That's what this whole series is about, by the way. Helping believers become disciples who begin to act more and more like missionaries. This, this is the mandate of the Great Commission. And, and we don't see it happening in many places in the Western church. And it's an incredible problem and the reason the church is in decline. Helping believers become disciples who act more and more like missionaries. I mean, this is... Uh, this is about how Jesus lived in family, and it is our model for how we might begin to act more and more like missionaries. Now, now track with me here. I think in our heads, when we talk about mission and reaching people with the gospel and, and evangelism, so often the images that come to our mind are, you know, the annoying guy on a college campus who's yelling at people and telling them they're going to hell, or... Um, the, the, the very uncomfortable feeling person who approaches strangers at the mall and tries to engage them in a spiritual conversation, right? God, God might call some people to that. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, but I do know he calls every follower 
to mission, to demonstrate and proclaim the kingdom of God to people in the world who are far from God. But he doesn't call us to do that alone. He's given us this vehicle, this way of doing it, an extended spiritual family of blood and non-blood relationships focused on the family business, which is the mission of God in the world, demonstrating, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And, And when we do this in community, it becomes suddenly much less stressful and much less burdensome. And the whole thing feels completely different. It doesn't feel like a personal violation or an emotional manipulation. It feels like that Thanksgiving dinner I experienced when I was a kid, right? It feels warm and and welcoming, inviting uh, uh, anyone who is open to you and God into community uh, just to be together, to share life together, to be known, to know one another. And, And that's the way mission is supposed to work, really. And the problem is we've lost this fundamental vehicle that I believe the Lord intends us to use to advance that cause. Jesus forged a spiritual family, and he turned that family toward mission to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And before we pray, let me invite you again to our Monday night class for those of you who tried to join last week, forgive me. I completely spaced our time together, and and uh, as we were enjoying a, a Memorial Day cookout uh, at distance with our backyard neighbors. But we are on for tomorrow, and we'll pick up where we left off, and also discuss the content of of this message as well. You can always find the Zoom link for that call in E News. It's in E News every week. Or if you need it, you can. Uh, Uh, email me and I'd be happy to send it to you. Uh, Also, don't miss next week. We're going to tie this whole series together with kind of a practical action plan for how we might better follow Jesus ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you uh, have not only uh, called us to a mission in this world, but you've given us a strategy a way to do that. So God, by your spirit, lead us in that, help us grow, guide us on. We want to follow you and we want to see many, many people who don't know you yet understand the depth of your love and your grace and experience your your welcoming as they come home spiritually to you. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.